I want to ask you to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 5, 1 Timothy 5. I'm going to consider the first 16 verses of 1 Timothy 5, and as you're going there, I want to say good morning and welcome. My name is Lance. It's a privilege to, to pastor here. I often get to study the Bible uh, with us as a church on Sunday mornings like this. I want to encourage you that if you haven't gotten uh, information or if you have something we could pray for you about or a way to get connected, please do reach out. There's a connect table out back. Uh, there's a hospitality team that would love to answer any questions. There's probably still ways around you in the pews. I'm a little gun shy about saying what's there because things have changed so much over the last couple of months. But uh, if you need information or want information, please do reach out. That being said, let me help you to see or to understand where we are as we consider 1 Timothy chapter 5. First, and perhaps the biggest thing that I never want to assume, is that we believe it is a, not only a faithful but a wise and profitable practice to consider Scripture deeply each and every week. God has given us His Word. It is a guide for us. It is life and breath and bread for us. And that as we consider Scripture, our, one of our goals or one of the things that we think is most profitable is to choose a book of the Bible and then walk through it. This means that we will encounter, over the course of time, we believe to be the whole counsel of God, not just things that we happen to be excited about in the moment. That means that sometimes we preach through or we teach through sections of Scripture that are really difficult or confusing. Other times we preach through portions of Scripture that are soaring and challenging and feel beyond us. And I say all that because this section of Scripture in 1 Timothy chapter 5 may seem to a lot of us to be very specific, very contextual, very down and nitty-gritty. And what I desire in a moment as I read this and then as we pray together, what I desire is for us to remember our confession, to remember that we believe that every word here is God-breathed, that every word is profitable for correction and training righteousness, for properly rebuking us and kindly rebuking us. And so as we think through and consider order in the church, order in God's household, we're going to look at this beginning section of chapter 5 in 1 Timothy, and we're going to find a lot of instruction on what relationships should look like. How are you related to the people sitting around you? And then more than that, specifically, how are we caring for widows? That's the section that we've come to. And so I'm going to start reading the first verse, 1 Timothy chapter 5. I'm going to read down through verse 16. 1 Timothy 5, first verse. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, in all purity. Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has... But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, 
and has devoted herself to every good work, but refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander, for some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. Let's pause there and, and pray. God, thank you for inviting us to your family. We acknowledge this morning, God, that you are more powerful than we can imagine. You are utterly and completely and totally in control. You command and the sun rises. You uphold and sustain everything that is. You're worthy of all praise and honor, every song that we could muster or write. And in all of your majesty, God, we have you as our Father. We thank you for this. More than that, God, thank you for being near to us. You're not far. You've opened your mouth. You've spoken to us given us instruction, and I pray now, God, that you would give us the, the proper insight, help us to see how we relate to one another, and then how our relationships lead to service that is honoring to you. God, for all of our distractions and doubts, the things that weigh us down this morning, please give release and freedom and joy. You know us better this morning than we know ourselves, and so we entrust all that we have and all that we are in our moments here now, our minds, our very hearts, we entrust them to you. Spirit of God, move in our midst. I pray that we would see marvelous and wonderful things in Scripture, and that we would be like Christ as a result. We ask it in his name, amen. First Timothy has been about order in the house, and by house we mean not only setting down of God's law, which this is, but house because God has called us, his people, his household. We're his family. And one of the greatest gifts that can happen in a family is to create and to maintain distinctions of relationship, especially as children age. And then it doesn't really ever go away. All of us have been in the midst of a full-blown identity crisis at some point or another. But one of the best things, the most important things, especially for children, I believe that one of the reasons God designed households at all is so that as human beings grow in this world that we would have grounding. We could look around and have some relationships to bank on. That we could say things like, I am son I am brother, this is father, this is mother. And so you get all kinds of familial relationships and cliched or stereotypical statements like, this happened because I'm the dad. 
that's why. Or you respect your mom because she's your mom. Or you need to get along with your siblings, your family. These statements are not throwaway statements. They are building into the core of who we are, some sense of identity that grounds us so that we know where we are and what we owe to the people around us. In a family sense, this is very important over the course of time. And what we're going to find here is Paul wants to tell Timothy, especially as a young man who is leading in the church, that one of the things that will keep him both grounded in the family of God and to keep him from the potential pitfalls of abusing or misusing his position is to consider the relationships around him. He essentially says to Timothy, you need to DTR everywhere you can. For those of you who are not hip to the lingo, DTR means define the relationship. It's the kind of thing that may be pressed upon young Christians when it seems as though they are either drawing or showing a lot of attention to one another. I was pressed to DTR numerous times with Sarah Tronhon of Louisiana. I pressed back at this. I did not want definition. I didn't want to talk about it. I even drew a little picture on a whiteboard and sure to Somebody once said to me, you got to DTR this thing. You either need to be with the crowd on the side or you got to jump in the pool, but you got to say, what are we doing? And I drew a big picture and I was like, well, let's talk about your pool analogy. What if there's space between the group and the pool and we just wanted to walk over there a little ways? I just didn't want a DTR. And when it finally happened, I remember the exact moment. I'm sitting at a piano in the brooder. It's an old chicken brooder. It's a place where we had our meals. And uh, I asked Sarah to go in to meet me there, and I'm sitting at a little piano, and she's on the side of the bench, and we're pressing the buttons and pretending we know how to play. And then, after months and months of praying through and thinking about this and taking romance classes from the greats, I said, Sarah, I just want you to know, I like you like that. I like you like that. And that's all it took. We had DTR'd. Now, it may not be as obvious in non-romantic relationships, but I believe that Paul's telling Timothy it's valuable to define the relationship with the people around you, specifically because the role that he has in the church as an organization and as an organism is going to lead him to have potential moments where he will abuse or misuse the place that he's in. I think it's significant that just in chapter 5, in the verses that we read, there are some of the greatest temptations here that are either explicitly referenced or alluded to. How, as a young man who has leadership in a church, who is having the Apostle Paul as a mentor and giving him instruction, how is Timothy going to avoid the misuse and the abuse of power in the church? Doesn't Timothy have the right to tell any old crusty person around him what to do? Can't Timothy demand an allegiance based on his God-ordained prophetic gifts? 
And it seems as though Paul says, Timothy, listen, don't let people look on, down on you because you're young, but you've got to set an example, and then you need to remember who you are in the household. So it seems as though Paul is giving Timothy instructions on how to avoid the misuse of power. More than that, he describes that in the family, you're going to have women around you that you need to consider sisters, and you should consider them sisters in all purity. In other words, Paul is forecasting for Timothy, Timothy, you're going to have to define some things so that you do not misuse your status, your place in impure ways with the women around you. Power, the leveraging of female relationships, they are going to need to be put in their place. They need to be bounded by something. And what they're going to be bounded by is proper understanding of the relationships around you. More than just power and sex or leveraging of those relationships, there's an entire section here about how widows should be cared for, and this idea of honoring them, of course, involves money. The purse of the church is in view. And how do we know how to properly care for one another? Resources are scarce. We don't have endless things to give. And so, Timothy, you're going to have to define and have some ideas about who's who. And I believe that what we're finding here is that a well-ordered household keeps in mind these two concepts. They are not competing. They're a wonderful both and that every household, including God's household, is going to keep in mind dignity and distinction. There is dignity and distinction in each of these relationships, and only by upholding both these things will you avoid the pitfalls of organizational chaos or of abuse in your role. You must look at those around you, consider them in light of what God has made them to you, and give them proper dignity. But, lest we be confused, in fact, I think that in our world presently, we can celebrate the idea that there are calls for the dignity of all people. We want to avoid bullying. There is a sensitivity to how we treat one another. But it can often run rampant to the exclusion of the idea that there are distinctions. That this is not universal humans in the church. That he relates to people differently based on God-ordained relationships. There is order and distinction in who people are. Why, one might say, can't Paul just say to Timothy, Timothy, just treat everyone nice and the same. Because everyone's the same. But instead, he gives distinctions. Distinctions that are due the honor and the dignity that comes with how God has designed us. He's going to... I mean, I'm just using a lot of these. He's going to DTR with dignity and distinction. I think, is that okay for a title? Can we do that? And then I'm going to describe under that maybe two subheadings and talk through them. First is, is that a household that is well-ordered has well-ordered relationships. So well-ordered relationships. And then second, a household that is well-ordered has well-ordered care. And I think that by well-ordered here, you could put any number of words, but really it just means clarity. You need to clarify what is actually going to happen. You know that 1 Timothy chapter 5 is interesting, especially in relationship to the rest of the book. 
I would say that a lot of the book up to this point has been strong on principles and powerful in assertions and big ideas, but maybe just a little bit less on the practical, things that are put into practice. And chapter 5 seems to flip it totally on its head. He seems very interested in exactly how these particular widows are going to be enrolled. He's giving clarity for care. Now, some of us are big idea thinkers. We do well with principles. All we want to do is think about the biggest truths, the deepest ones, the things we stand on, and then we trust that the Spirit of God can help us to apply it as we go along. We're big picture thinker truth people. And then there's other people who are around people like that who are constantly frustrated and panicked saying, well, that's easy to say, but someone's going to have to do something. You know that, right? Someone's going to have to write this down. Now, which date are you talking about for that meeting? How many chairs did you need? Who's going to pay for that? Those people might be considered more practical, pragmatic, doing kind of people. They understand that big ideas and principles eventually have to be executed. I mean, someone needs to do the work. And the wonderful thing here in 1 Timothy chapter 5 is that Paul seems to give us an idea or a demonstration of how both of these things are going to happen. He gives some principles, but now he's going to go strong on execution. And for those of us who love lists and specifics, this might be part of your chapter. So let me start with well-ordered relationships first, and then we're going to get to the clarity over how to deal with widows. Paul has already introduced the concept of familial relationships, and now he's going to make that more specific by saying that we ought to view one another in the light of those loving relationships, that we ought to give dignity and respect, the dignity and respect that is due the distinction of their role. So he tells Timothy, You are a younger man, so be careful to not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Now, I don't think that he's saying you can't ever correct someone that's older. But imagine a loving relationship with your father, and if you got to the point where you really needed to step in, and more and more I'm seeing the difficulty of this. When I was a younger man, I just viewed my parents in one particular way, and that is that they're always older, not needy, no questions. I didn't really have many opinions at all. In fact, it shows how self-serving and self-centered children can be. I guess if I'm more honest, I just didn't think about them much and their needs. And what I find in me and with the many of my friends that I know, there comes a time when you do need to speak in what you believe truthfully to your parents' world And I often pray with or think through these kinds of things with people about how am I going to do that? You ever had someone ask you that? Sit down and say, gosh, I'm just really bothered. I have to talk to my parents. I I got to talk to my dad. Maybe it comes to light finally, something that has been destructive or difficult in a home or in a world. And I think that There is a place and a role sometimes where you need to speak, maybe in Timothy's world, you need to speak sort of prophetically, you need to speak truthfully. But Paul tells him, Timothy, don't ever forget that your father deserves respect. Your elders, the people that have come before you, need to be given dignity. And so you can imagine that what is being instructed here is that Timothy would take time and he would be prayerful 
And he would ask the Spirit of God to move him in kindness and in gentleness to be able to speak things, but to offer them not as a rebuke, not as a throwaway comment, not without time, not without honor, but carefully. And what's interesting about God's household is that it moves us beyond. It doesn't destroy the distinctions that we're taught in our biological families. It doesn't destroy them, but it deepens them and expands the love that we're to offer. Christianity is not just a better way for your family to function. It's not tribalism with good morals, but he extends it. And he says, I think you should view all of the older men in your context with this, in this light as fathers. It means that in the body of Christ over the course of time, especially young men, young men in positions of leadership, young men who have been given a mantle to teach or to instruct or to lead, and that could be in any, one of, any kind of context, it means that we need older men. We need their wisdom. We need their experience. And perhaps most importantly, it will be older men that will teach us how to speak to one another with respect and care And so he says, Timothy, you have a lot of fathers in the church. I'm going to use this father example because he's already given the example of how to rebuke them. And I want to flip it on its head and make this point that I believe is going to carry through for the rest of the categories. And that is this. It also means that older men who have experience and have influence and have wisdom and deserve the kind of dignity that would be given to a father, I think it means this as well, that your fathering all of the skills you get in dadding in life. And whether you like it or not, you're just going to have to grow in some dad skills. I think Paul envisions this, that what God desires and what he's designed is that those skills do not stop at the threshold of your front door when you leave on Sunday mornings. Do you know what the church needs? Spiritual fathers. It needs people who will dad around here. Just dad it up. Turn off the lights that are left on. Fix the things that need some fixing. Speak lovingly, some care and some instruction. Come alongside. Take your I was a baseball coach to the kids for 20 years voice. Now listen, listen, I see you throwing out there. That's great. That's a good job. Let me, th- let me, let me tell you what could happen though. What if? So here's the question. Has the Spirit of God kept you faithful through the decades? Are you still here? Do you have some wisdom? Have you been around a while? Then I would encourage you to ask the question, what might it mean for me to be a father in the church? Men, as we age, let's not separate the joyful, wonderful role it is to be a dad. Let's not separate it from the family that God has placed us in, in the church. So, Timothy will give dignity and distinction to those who have gone before him. He goes on, though, and it's not just fathers. He describes, well, younger men, because if there's one way in an upward direction to abuse authority and to not give dignity and distinction to fathers, there's also a way that you could lord it over the younger men who are below you. And he says, here's the thing, you ought to think of them not just as subservient or cogs in a wheel, but brothers in the church, brothers in arms, brothers with gifts, brothers to be deployed, brothers to be engaged with. 
our connection, our time, our energy, our love, our affection should be given to fellow Christians in the same way that you might think of the affection and the time, the joy, the interaction that you would give to your biological brothers. I might just say here that I have felt this and seen this so often in our church. I think there are many of you who would say, oh, I have way more joy and close relationships with my brothers in the church than I do with my biological ones. So this is easy. This makes sense. But I believe that this sort of engagement is not the norm necessarily for everyone, and it does not mean merely being nice. It means that we watch out for one another. You see, the thing about brothers is they can often be very, very heated in their relationship. There's a kind of built-in competitiveness. It's been funny watching our three boys. And I had an older brother growing up, and I grew up next to all kinds of boy cousins. And, you know, the stereotype, which is so, so true, is that brothers within a family and within that relationship can say the meanest things in the world. I mean, they can disagree hotly to the point where it is, is amazing. Fisticuffs, the drop of a hat. My best friend, I once watched him and his brother fight in the front of our elementary school on the main street of my hometown. And I remember just thinking, this is disturbing. I cannot believe the ferocious fighting. But the thing about those two, and maybe in your relationship or with my brother, the funny thing is, though, is that if anybody else tries to mess with your brother, what happens? You say, no, 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 I insult my brother, not you. You see, we're together in this. And you could go from fighting one another to fighting all oncomers in a blink. Because you've been bound together. You have a connection. You have an obligation to the care and the well-being of your brothers. And so what I would say is that Timothy is being instructed by Paul to not only avoid the kind of negligent meanness that can happen in a power struggle between men, but more than that, to transplant or to transpose over the top of his relationships with other men in the church the kind of obligation, the fierce love and affection that comes in a brother relationship. Younger men in the church are not those to be ignored, not those to only be argued with, but those who have been given as a source of strength and identity those to fight alongside. He goes on and says, not only fathers and brothers, this covers more or less everyone above you, Timothy, and everyone below. I love that Paul gives categories that are big enough so that Timothy doesn't have to worry that he doesn't have clarity in who or how to treat the people around him. So the men are taken care of, and now he's going to say to Timothy, Timothy, as well, you need to consider that there are older women in your midst. And how do you treat older women in your midst? Well, you treat them as mothers, perhaps more than fathers. Maybe if I had to give a little bit of an encouragement to dads to dad it up around here, I would say that in my experience, at least in my church growing up, I was oftentimes as a young man overwhelmed with the grace and love of spiritual mothers. I remember from the 
earliest times in school, getting a letter in the mail, handwritten card with my name on the front of it. And there was an older woman in our church who would take time and scour the newspaper, even of little local communities around Grand Forks. And whenever she saw someone from the church's name popped up, she would write them a letter of encouragement, a little note. I am not kidding, this woman would take the time to handwrite a note to seventh grade me because I made the honor roll for academics. Lance, I just wanted to let you know, I saw your name, great job. So faithful of you to study those subjects. I, you must enjoy school because you're just doing a great job. I wanted you to know I prayed for you today. We love that you're a part of this church. And then she signs it with love. I mean, as a young man, that's pretty amazing. My mom is amazing, but when I showed up at church, I knew I had some other moms. You know, Paul didn't have, didn't have endless words. We have a good amount of his letters. He didn't have endless words, but it's astounding how often he mentions spiritual mothers in the church. There's one specifically that I'm going to point out, Romans 16, 13. Romans 16, 13, he says this in his closing remarks. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord. Also, he says, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. This reality of the household of God means that we have been given expansive opportunities to put into practice a kind of being. It means that the way we relate to one another does not have to be based on biological premises. It means that the women in this church can look around them and say, how can I mother? How can I extend love? How can I speak truth? How can I give encouragement? How can I pray? How can I serve? How can I bring some order around here? In all of the best ways, when you think of what, what is a mother and how, how strong is she and what kind of pillar is she in a family and in a home, Paul has now said to Timothy, you should look around and there are women in the church and this is the role that they can be filling. We are not just men and women, not mere genders. But in Christ, we are family, and we can have roles to play. We offer dignity and distinction to those around us, and we can function in this way. Maybe it's been obvious up to this point, but any one of us could be any one of these things at any time. I am an older man to some in this church. It's disturbing increasingly how much of an older man I am to some in this church. You ever been talking with someone and you just assumed you were peers and then they said something that made you realize that you've been put in your place and that they saw you as a much older gentleman? <laughs> oh, wow, what was it like back in your day? <laughs> and you think, wait, I thought we were having a great peer conversation here. I must give respect to those older than me 
and see them as my father and invite them to that role. And I, sometimes as an older man, must give dignity and respect to younger men as, as brothers, but also recognize that I have an opportunity to be a kind of father to them. And women, you have an opportunity. There is a door there for you to look around and to see those who are coming after you and to say, I will step in. I am going to mother. It's really a bummer that sometimes these, uh, these words have negative connotations, right? Like a, sometimes I hear people saying like, well, nobody wants to be mothered. I think like, well, I just want to redeem that word because when I think of mothering, I'm like, yes, I want to be mothered. I'm a baby. I want to be mothered because when I think of mothered, what it means is my mom at all hours of the night let me come and just sit next to her bed and tell her about all my worries. When I think about mothering, I think about my mom writing notes about the things that I would need for school on the door. When I think about mothering, I think about her worrying about things that I never knew were an issue and thinking ahead of time for me. When I think about mothering, I think about the exhaustion that came with her love and service to the family, with the joy that she took in the smallest of achievements, with the faithful, strong praying that she offered in our home. There is a kind of mothering that is an unspeakable gift. It's why Paul, he's writing to the church in Rome, he's just described the gospel, and then he's like, listen, 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 please greet Rufus. Rufus ends in S, so it's a hard plural. Rufus's, Rufus' mother. She's been a mother to me. He goes on from there, not only fathers and brothers and mothers, but he says younger women. They are and they they can be or should be in the way you relate to them as sisters in the church. And he adds this little word, this little addendum, in all purity. I don't believe that we need to count down all of the grievous ways in which this command has been transgressed. In fact, to do so in detail might be inappropriate for the occasion even. But I think that we could all imagine certainly this kind of sin of men toward women has not been invented in our day and age. Paul knew all the way back then that he needed to give dignity and respect to the women that were around him to treat them in action and in word and in heart with all purity. This means that long before any one church is a place to find a girlfriend and eventually a wife, that what you have found in a church is a group of sisters. And what a testimony and what a powerful thing it would be to the world to find in this place relationships between men and women that are not based on the hurt and the awkwardness and the ongoing difficulty of abuse and misuse of relationships between men and women. Paul says to Timothy, when you look around, tell me what you see. And when you see the women around you given as sisters, treat them that way. Speak up in this 
manner. If we would consider one another in, these, in this light, how different or how much of a change it could make. Timothy is a young man and he's being spoken to, so I think I can speak to young men here in the church. Be careful. Be careful in the way that you treat the women around you, let alone the Christian women around you who God has given as your sister. Let us not be lax or let runaway minds and hearts be disconnected from the call of God to purity and holiness in our lives. Speak up when words need to be offered in defense. Correct one another when temptation or sin arises. Allow the women in our church to enter into this place and into our relationships with a kind of joy and gritty engagement and fighting alongside that sisters would have in a healthy family relationship. These back and forths must be not only clarified carefully, but given dignity and distinction. I don't believe this should be taken too far or weirdly, and it might be hard sometimes, but it does mean this. I should treat, I think what Paul's telling Timothy is, I should treat the Christian men in my life as brothers, and I should treat the Christian women in my life not as brothers, whatever that means, not as, you see how there's distinction here? Now, this might change in light of concepts, or you might just need to feel it out or not assume. Some sisters maybe are, are spoken to different, or they engage in a different way or something, but the point is this, to be careful and think through these things and give distinction. The women in Christ around you are sisters, the men in Christ around you are brothers, the olders are fathers, the older women are mothers. I think this would fundamentally transform the way that we act in the church. Are you ready to hold a both and? Because the idea of household relationships between families then moves on now, and he gives specific instruction toward widows, and now here's going to be the both and we have to hold. Somehow in God's family and in his economy of the way the church works, we have redefined and expanded household relationships, but it does not mean that it totally erases the biological household relationships that God has given us. Does this make sense? Because it could lead us to believe, oh, well, what Paul is saying is we no longer have obligations to anyone physical because we've been given new fathers and new mothers and new brothers and new sisters in the church. But it does not seem to be the case because the rest of the instruction on how to deal with widows, Paul's going to make careful distinction and say, no, listen, there are people that God has given you specifically in your home. So relationships in the church are more than mere sentiment. They come with attendant responsibilities, but they are also still connected to the physical relationships that we've been given in God's providence. They're not totally separate. And we have to keep that in view or else the rest of this instruction probably won't make any sense. 
he gives clarity first and gives distinctions on relationships, familial ones in the church, and now he's going to speak directly to the case of widows. Now, he starts off here, and he introduces right at the beginning two categories of widows. There are two categories of widows here, and if we're going to have a well-ordered church, we need to think about how we care for one another. And specifically, widows were those who were the most vulnerable and those who were going to be most disconnected from the physical, providential relationships of family that they had been given in this world. And because of their vulnerable position, Paul says, Timothy, let's think about widows as a special case here just for a moment. There are two categories, and they're going to be marked by a couple of phrases. In fact, there's two words, and I think that this is going to help you be tipped off of which he's talking about. It seems as though there's a kind of widow that is going to be given aid, specific, ongoing, preferential aid, and he marks that group of widows with the word honor. Honor, he starts at in verse 3, honor widows. So there's one category of widows that on the top of it, you just put a big title, honor, and that idea of honor is going to include the idea of payment or support. It's the same kind of honor that's going to show up in the rest of chapter 5. But there's a second group of widows, and that seems to be marked by a different verb, and that is the one that introduces verse 9, let. Let. Let a widow be enrolled. There's like a whole other separate category, and at the top of that it says let. And then he's going to give us some distinctions between these things. He's going to make distinctions. In order to get at the proper dignity that we need to give to them, we need to start making distinctions distinctions. Let me give one distinction to widows that may not be obvious, but it should be said, and that is is that everywhere in Scripture, not maybe everywhere, but in a lot of places under lots of rocks, you will find what according to world standards, especially up to this day and age, what according to world standards is an inordinate, surprising love and care and concern for widows. Scripture is moving toward widows more often than you would imagine. God's heartbeat for those who have been displaced. God's desire to love well those who need a family in the church more than others maybe is everywhere. In fact, so Scripture honors them, honors widows far more than other cultures, especially on record, would have. Oftentimes, especially in this day and age, because likely they were unable to own land or hold positions of authority or to keep or maintain wealth, a married woman was defined only in relationship to her husband. That was the only significance that she had. And far too often, when a husband died, she would lose all social significance, all hope of continuing and be nearly immediately sent to a life of poverty and struggle. However, here's some a list of the way that Scripture values these people. Throughout the Bible, justice and love, nearly every single time that justice and love is described of God or demanded of God's people in view are widows. God Himself describes Himself as a father to the fatherless and a defender of the widows. When God wants to say what he is, he says, here's what I'm like. I am a father to the fatherless, and I am a defender of widows. It is written of him in praise that he defends the case. Not only is he a father to the fatherless and a defender of widows, but he defends their case. 
He says in his law over and over and over again, do not take advantage of widows and orphans. This goes all the way down to the way that farmers would farm their fields. God gives specific instruction to those who had produce that they were not to take second and third passes over the fields, but rather instead to intentionally leave extra for the case of the orphan and the widow. Agricultural economies were set up with the widow in mind in God's world. God steps in often and rebukes his people and says, do not take advantage of widows and orphans. If you do, when they cry out to me, I will certainly listen and my anger will be aroused. These are the words of God. When the widow cries out, I will listen and if you withhold from them, I will be angry. Like the Mr. Potato Head thing in Toy Story, where the Mrs. Potato says, I packed your angry eyes just in case. God's got a just-in-case pile next to him with his angry eyes. And he looks down and he says, listen, if you're going to ignore the widows and the orphans, I got them right here just in case. And I'll put them on. Magistrates and judges who withheld justice from widows would come under God's judgment and be removed from their positions. God's people were instructed to keep a separate tithe that would be stored up just for these occasions when widows and orphans would need to be cared for. Prophets, when they spoke in the midst of the litany of problems that Israel had, including going off to idols of other nations... One of the most common complaints of the prophets is that Israel was not defending and providing for widows, but rather exploiting them and oppressing them. This is Old Testament view of God's understanding of the way that Israel ought to be. And then Jesus steps into our midst. And there are so many instances recorded not by accident of Jesus and his interaction specifically with widows. He restores to life the only son the widow of Nain. He commends in a demonstration of the kind of praying that we, ought to do, that we ought to do, the persistence of the badgering widow who cries out for justice again and again and again and again. In a sense, if he says, you want to learn how to pray, let me tell you a story about a widow. When he describes how we ought to give, especially to those who are self-righteous, who had more than they knew what to do with, but trumpeted their generosity. He says, you want to know what generosity looks like? Let me, let, me, let me show you this widow and the coins that she's about to drop in the offering. When he spoke to his disciples against scribes and Pharisees, those who he often warned against, one of his major warnings to them, one of his descriptions. Now, remember the words that Jesus often gave to Pharisees and to scribes. I mean, he would say the worst of the worst. You are whitewashed tombs. You are snakes. And all, I mean, the, he never ever gets angry and mad like he does with those people. And in addition to that list of what he describes them, he warns his disciples against scribes who would devour widows' houses. He says, be careful about those who set up a religion that devours widows' houses. You know, one of Jesus' last commands, his last instructions, his last bit of teaching from the cross was to care for his widowed mother. And in light of this, 
The early church takes the commands of God and His character all through Scripture and the the testimony of His people. It takes the example of Jesus, and early in the church, the moment that it starts getting complicated and complex, one of the first orders of business in Acts chapter 6 is everyone saying, listen, we cannot keep neglecting these Hellenistic widows. we got to bring some clarity to this. We need to keep in view those who are being left behind. And then perhaps most pointedly, most of you know this verse, but James 1, 26 and 27 says that if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. And then in contrast to a worthless religion, verse 27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, to keep oneself unstained from the world. The basic list here that Paul's going to give to make sure that Timothy does not fall into this trap that seems so common, and that is, is that we love to be family together until someone has real need. And the real needs of these widows, Paul says, let's think about this, and he has these two lists in mind. Those who should be honored are true widows, he calls them, truly widows. Here's the list. There are those that are all alone. There are those that have demonstrated that they hope in God and pray persistently. There are those that are around 60 or older than 60. They were those who were the wife of one husband. In other words, they had a demonstration of faithfulness and had not fallen into the temptation or resorted to use of romantic relationships to survive. More than that, this true deserving widow list had a reputation for good works, who had brought up children. They were hospitable. They had cared for the hurting and had a reputation for not only having good works, but for persisting in them even in the midst of hardship. There's one example of these kind of widows that actually marked a ministry when I was a child. Acts chapter 9, starting in verse 36, I'm going to read it in a minute, but it's about a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. And in my church when I was a kid, there was a group of women who served in good works, most of them older, many of them having lost the rest of their family, and this was Dorcas ministry. And I regret to tell you that as a fifth grader, I could not handle this. So on more than one occasion, I took a sign-up form from our pews, and I signed my brother up, checking the box for interest in Dorcas ministry. And I thought it was the funniest thing that anyone had ever done. It turned out, though, that I did not understand the full extent or how wonderfully loving this group of women was in our church. It comes from, the impulse comes from this section in Acts chapter 9. This is, I believe, a good description of the kind of widows or women that were due honor. It says in this verse 36, Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days, she became ill and died, and when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside and knelt down and prayed, and turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up. 
And he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with one Simon, a tanner. This passage gives us an example not only in Dorcas' life, her full of good works and acts of charity, the impact that she seemed to have not only as a widow-type figure, but clearly to the widows of the church. They were there weeping and showing all the things, saying, look at the impact that this woman had. I think definitively, and we could make a list of who was undeserving as a widow, he's very clear about that. He doesn't pull any punches that sometimes people will be undeserving, but those who were deserving seem to be, if I could mark it or sum it up, they seem to be those who were able to receive from the church and not be spoiled by it. That those who were most deserving as widows were those who understood the reciprocal relationship of the grace of God. That widows were the kind of women who stepped in as mothers in the church because for whatever reason their relationship as a wife and perhaps even as a mom had been not granted to them, at least for the long term, in this life. And they were the kind of widows who were a delight to honor and to support financially because they were the kind of widows who understood, well, I'm going to receive the grace of God in a particular way that I didn't design and didn't want, but let me tell you what happens when the grace of God comes into my life. It flows through. It goes to others. And ultimately, the greatest demonstration that we understand God's gifts and His work in our life is that we receive in order to give. And then as we give, we then receive. And these widows were not a dead-end place where resources went to die, but that in fact, by keeping the vulnerable in view, we were multiplying the gifts of the church. That what we found not only in generosity and giving to widows and the vulnerable, was not only was this not a waste of people who were needy, but in fact the church was becoming more the church than it ever could be if we had ignored their need. That this group of women was the strength of who we were. Ultimately, when we give generously and when we care compassionately and when we give the grace of God and resources that we have in the manner in which God designates for us, we should never ever fear that we are being weakened. It is not weak to care for the vulnerable. It is not dangerous to generously give ourselves away. And what's demonstrated here is Paul's trying to tell Timothy, listen, find this group of women because when you find them and when you support them, the church will explode with such good works, such love and care you will be surprised. I don't have time to describe all of what it may mean with if someone's in your household, care for them, and if you don't, you've denied the faith and worse than an unbeliever, except to say that it maybe means something like this. If you have been given means by God to care for those in your immediate vicinity, as a Christian, and with the love that God has given you, the grace that he's given you, care for the people that you can care for. Don't wait and place the burden on the church. I think that's the idea there. However, as a summary, I think it means both of these things. As individuals, 
Let's care for the vulnerable in our midst, especially the ones we have access to, especially our households. And not only individually, but corporately, let's commit to care for those who need our help. Where we've been lax, where we've been lazy, where we've been unclear, where we haven't defined properly, who am I and who are the people around me? God, help us to find better clarity so that we can give better dignity. And where we have neglected, especially in our day and age, the, the rampant difficulty or the rampant number of single mothers in our midst, where have we ignored and not seen real needs? May God give us greater clarity so that we can give better care and that as we give ourselves away, we become stronger. I want to ask you to pray with me to that end. God, thank you for giving us a household. God, I'm not ignorant of the fact that for so many of us, biological family is a difficult topic. And I pray that this morning through your spirit, through the teaching of scripture, that you would give us hope and awaken us to your desire to redeem familial relationships. I pray that you would work deeply in our biological families, bring healing and reconciliation and love. And God, I ask that you would awaken us. May we not, we we have so many needs and so many things you've designed us to be, I pray that we would not leave them untapped or unexamined. God, I thank you for the spiritual fathers, the spiritual mothers in my life. Help me to not be an ingrate. You've gifted me down through my years. And even now, thank you, God, for the gift of spiritual fathering and mothering. And God, open my eyes as well. When I have need relationally and need for people to run with, open my eyes to the brothers and sisters that you've given me in the church. Help me to find my identity, find my place more consistently and persistently here. And God, I ask that you would help us to care for the most vulnerable in our midst. I pray that we would define well those who have needs. For those who would perhaps be overlooked, those who would be passed off to someplace else or someone else, teach us how to care for one another as a family. I pray, God, for widows, those who are in their positions in our midst. God, could we not only identify but to be generous with them. We need your help in these things. We want to set an example. We want to walk with the heartbeat that you have. You love the widow. You defend their cause. And may it be said of us that we do the same. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.